Well, good evening to each one. I greet you in Jesus' name. It's a blessing to be with you here this evening. I so much appreciated the opening thoughts that were shared about coming before God, coming before God in reverence, and thinking about sanctifying God in our hearts, preparing our hearts for this. My initial thoughts as I was thinking about the work that is presented before us is, is the weighty responsibility that it is. And sometimes I wonder if we approach ordinations and qualification work and think about what is taking place. If you, uh, I started coming down to this valley probably 25 years ago as a youth. Had some friends down here and invited us down, came down here, started getting into some of the churches. And then as a married man and being ordained, the, the, the minister's conference, uh, study week, whatever it is, preaching in the churches. And so I, I remember some of those names, John Risser, Larry Shoulder, you know. And so you think about what is happening. We are moving forward in the life of the church. And some of those old faithful men of the past are no longer the ones in charge anymore leading out in the church and someone has to take on that responsibility and I was I was trying in my mind to think of an analogy that would help us understand and the closest thing I could come was something like this and we we don't even want to imagine this and maybe it's a bad analogy but think about if you as a young parent were raising your children, you were doing the best you could for your children, uh, ages one, two, three, and four, and along about five years old, you had to make a decision. Who was going to take over parenting your children? Now, we don't do that, thankfully, unless there's something tragic happens that don't take place. But think about making that decision. When a, when a child is in that young, impressionable age of five years old, and you have to make a decision who's going to take over parenting that child. How would you approach that? My youngest is seven now. And if I had to make that decision, I would tremble. And I would come before God, and I would pour out my heart, and I would be very involved because it would matter to me. And I wouldn't just pass it off lightly and say, but probably someone else will make it happen. And tonight, when God looks at his church, and he looks at the souls that are in his church. And we are thinking about leadership, the future of the church. And there are those young, impressionable souls in that church. And we are looking for a faithful church. And who's going to carry that on? And I think God is intensely interested in a nomination service. I believe he cares. And I'm not trying to put pressure on you tonight to feel like that every person here needs to nominate. That's not the purpose. Of that. I just want us to feel the weight and the responsibility 
of what this means. And maybe you will not feel the prompting or led to give a name, and that's okay. As long as you have wrestled in prayer and sanctifying God in your heart and coming before God in humility. Two things in focus, the addition of leadership, a minister, and somewhat the transition of leadership. And, and it, the, the transition, we recognize, doesn't happen overnight. But, but if you're, you're thinking about uh, another bishop, and so you have an addition of leadership and you have some transition of leadership, and that's what is in focus for tonight. I, a couple years ago, we were having an ordination in our church. It was a deacon ordination. And I was wrestling with the nomination process as I was thinking about brethren, qualified brethren. I was wrestling in my heart. Uh, and I almost got to the place where I said, God, there's no one qualified. And I went to scripture and I opened up to Titus or Timothy, and I just started reading the qualifications for the deacon. As I read down through those qualifications for the deacon, something became very clear to me as some of the issues that I was wrestling with in the life of some of those brethren were not even qualifications listed in Scripture. And as I opened that up and rested before God and that, it brought peace to my heart. So we're thinking about qualifications tonight, and I cannot take away all the, all the uneasiness, unsettledness that we feel in, in these kind of services sometimes. But I want, I, I, my goal tonight is to stick pretty close to Scripture. And we have qualifications to stick fairly close to those qualifications and help us gain God's perspective of what makes a qualified leader. And I know every minister, every bishop, every deacon here looks at these qualifications many times and they, they begin to shake their heads and they say, how, can, how was I qualified? So many times we need the grace of God to help us through trying times. But we have these list of qualifications. We want to look at those. Before I, before I do that, I want to think briefly about the work of. Uh, what, what is involved with the work of a minister, the work of a bishop? Because if we, if we think a little bit about what is involved in the work of, then it helps us to process the qualifications. Um, turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. As we, as we would look through our New Testament scriptures, we find a number of words that talk about leadership. You find, you find the word minister, you find the word elders, you find the word bishop, you find the word deacon. Uh, I'm not sure, there may be another one or two uh, that references leadership, but primarily those are the ones you would find in scripture. Uh, when, we, when we have qualifications, it sticks primarily to 
uh, bishops or elders, used pretty closely together, and deacons. Uh, in our churches, traditionally in our churches, we have adopted what we call the threefold ministry. Bishops, ministers, deacons, or deacons, ministers, and bishops. Um, and it has worked very well for us. And I was, I was thinking about this some. I was thinking about the qualifications uh, specific to bishops, elders, and the qualifications specific to deacon. And I was thinking about, the, I looked at this passage here in 2 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. This is Peter, of course. The elders which are among you I exhort who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. And so here is Peter. He's tasked with writing this letter. He's, he's, writing, he's writing here. And he is exhorting the elders that are among you. And he's kind of what, what it looks like here is an elder of the elders or an overseer. Of the elders, but he he don't he don't classify himself as above. He says, "Who am also an elder." My mind also went to the apostle Paul. Uh, we think of him many times as uh, when he writes his letters. He he talks about an issue that's happening in the church, and and he says, "Until I come, or until I am going to set things in order, or I will set things in order when I come." I long to come to you. So it, it looks like the Apostle Paul was uh, kind of an overseer in the churches, but then he was appointing leaders in the church. And so I, I think that we have a pattern in our scripture for what we call the threefold ministry. Um, deacons, ministers, and bishops. And they each have they each have their jobs, and 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 I know. And you get into different churches. There's people that look at it just a little bit differently, and that's not the subject for this evening. We're not going to debate that. But in essence, uh, in essence, you have the minister who is primarily responsible, I believe, to feed and to shepherd the church. That is the primary uh, work of the minister, and that is the exhortation that. Peter is giving here in chapter 2 Peter chapter 5. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Uh, we'll reference this passage a little more as we go along. But thinking uh, specifically about feeding, the, the responsibility of a minister, duties of a minister, shepherd, preach, or feed. Now, anybody that uh, understands animal husbandry knows that the easy part is throwing feed to the animals, right? I mean, that's fairly straightforward and simple to do. You take the feed, you give it to the animals, and they begin to eat. Uh, oftentimes overfeeding is the time that we take general uh, inventory of the animals and we start looking, are there those that are not eating? Are those that uh, look poor? It's a time when they're all together. You can look, you compare. 
Um, and so this idea of feeding is not just throwing out words of truth. It also carries the idea of shepherding, uh, looking out in your congregation, responding to needs, finding out what the needs are in your congregation, uh, talking to, ministering to, the duties of a minister. And that is, that is a responsibility of the minister. Second, or First Corinthians chapter 4, 1 and 2. Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. There is a tremendous responsibility that goes along with the responsibility of feeding. As a minister, you have the responsibility of handling the mysteries of God. And that is not something that is to be taken lightly. The mysteries of God are those, those things that you are taking from the word of God and you are presenting them in a way that can be understood and that can, that can feed and give life to the congregation. And you have the, the steward has responsibility of what he's going to do with that. In faithfulness, duties of a minister. The duties of a bishop include feeding, ministering, and shepherding. They include that. It's the responsibility of the bishop to make sure the members are being fed. I had a bishop tell me one time that he recognized one of his ministers in his congregation uh, in his preaching was mostly consistently preaching the same theme or subject Sunday after Sunday when it was his turn to preach. And he felt like it's his responsibility to go and simply say, you know, there, there's more in Scripture than this certain subject that you're hitting most times uh, when you preach. Had that responsibility. Someone looks out for the ministry. It's one of the duties of a bishop. Another duty of a bishop is to officiate. Weddings, communions, ordinations, baptism. And I know, I know some, there's some variation in this, but traditionally, bishops are called to officiate, moderating meetings, etc. You know, Officiating in a wedding or communion service or an ordination or a funeral or a baptism is not just moderating the meeting. There is a fair amount of work that goes into officiating. And you think about the work, you think, I think specifically of weddings. A lot of planning goes into weddings, a lot of time invested, and the bishop is behind uh, they, are, they are giving their wedding plans to the bishop. And he is saying, uh, but maybe, maybe you should do this instead of this. Uh, maybe they give him his, the list of songs. He said, you know, I just don't feel right about this song. There are, there are many things that go into officiating other than you, we, we see the bishop up moderating, but we don't think about what goes on behind the scenes as he's trying to guide He's trying to promote truth and faithfulness in his congregation. A lot goes into officiating. 
Another duty of a minister is administering discipline. And there's a way in which all ministry help with this. But oftentimes when there's public suspending, excommunication, etc., it's the bishop that's leading out. And you want your bishop to be someone who can administrate discipline firmly but with love and grace. Another duty of a minute or of a bishop is pastoral duties, which include the congregation, but it also includes the pastors. And I, I think it was Larry Shoulder that I first heard make the statement that, that the bishop should be responsible for pastoring pastors. What happens when the pastors need encouragement? They have needs too. Who's going to care for them? Who's going to sit down and talk with them, make time for them? Someone needs to do that. And in overall leading and guiding the congregation, the responsibility of a bishop. And if you wondered why Brother Nelson started out the way he did, with preparing your heart, sanctifying God in your heart, coming before God in reverence and fear and humility, is because of the responsibility. Let's move on to qualifications. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3, I'll read the first seven verses. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetousness, covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man knew not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, thus being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. Turn to Titus chapter 1. Verse 5, Titus 1 verse 5. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless, as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, 
but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, and he be able to that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. I'll just continue reading there. I took these two passages and I assembled a list of 15 qualifications. And we'll move over this list fairly quickly. And we won't spend a lot of time on some of them. Simply move through them. Number one, blameless. And, and you'll notice uh, that these are qualifications. When we give a qualification message for ministry, we use these qualifications. When we give a qualification message for a bishop, we use these qualifications. And you think about the primary duties, they very much overlap, except that the bishop has the responsibility of leading out. Now, I don't, I don't want to create an argument down here in the valley, but I, I personally like to view the bishop as the lead minister. Uh, he is the one who is leading out. He is responsible. He is the lead minister. He is one of the team who am also an elder. Um, that's the way I like to view the role of the bishop in a congregation. Anyway, number one, he must be blameless, unrebukable, irreproachable. I doubt many of us would raise our hand and say we have lived our lives blameless. Okay, but you can tell when there is a man who will go to extra lengths to make sure he is living his life above reproach. You will not make it through life without criticism. All of us have, have, have done enough things in our life that anybody could find a blacklist against us if they wanted to. But a person who purposefully tries to live his life above reproach so that, I, I like this verse in Titus chapter 2 that says, sound speech that cannot be condemned that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed having no evil thing to say of you. So it, it is a life that is lived. So when, when folks look and they want to try to come up with something that they can blame you for, there's just not much there. Because it was a life lived above reproach. And I hope we have enough grace for humankind to know when a man fails and he's genuinely sorry for his failure and he gets up and keeps going. Those men are hard to find, but they're out there. 
and continues to strive to live his life above reproach. And there's not patterns of repeat and failure. And he is willing to be an example of the believers in his business, the way he conducts his business. He is willing to be an example of the church in the way he dresses and presents himself. And I hear folks say sometimes, but you can't have a double standard in your church. And I happen to agree with that. You shouldn't. But there is nothing wrong with a man who is willing to stand up and just be an example. Number two, husband of one wife. And yes, this means exactly what it says. The husband of one wife. It also, I believe, would carry the meaning of keeping your wedding vows. It, it, is, it, is a, it is a testament to commitment. And I wonder, if you look at a man and the way he reverences and respects his one wife, if it will tell you anything about his value for the bride of Christ... Many folks these days ditch their wives for some fleeting pleasure. And many wives shamefully have to compete. Are there men that love being with their one wife, who value them, who respect them, and you can see it. And they will be men who are committed to the bride of Christ and value and respect her. As well. Number three, faithful children, children in subjection. I think in Timothy it says children, having his children in subjection. In Titus it says faithful children. And this is a hard one. And we're not going to try to add, nor are we going to try to take away from the qualification. There are children who have grown up and made their choices in life and have walked away. And their parents were those who desperately tried to keep their children in subjection. And then there are parents who by all appearances don't try and their children are still faithful in the church. And I can't reconcile that neatly. But I have come to rest in the fact that when I look at a man, I can tell where his heart is at with his family. And I can tell when he is keeping his children in subjection. You can tell that in a man, whether he's engaged with his children, whether he knows where his children are at, what they're doing, how they're or whether they're not, and whether he is trying. And again, let's give grace to humanity, which knows that children will not be trained overnight. So we're not looking necessarily at the end product when the children are small. We're looking at the process. Number four not self-willed or selfish. 
When you think about the work of a bishop, the one who officiates, the one who leads out, the one who is moderating, the one who is maybe the lead minister, the damage that happens if he's a self-willed person. Self in the heart of man is one of the most damaging things that a church can face. I think it's in third, second or third John. We go back and we would look at the man Diotrephes. He was a man, it said, who loved to have the preeminence. He loved to put himself up somewhere. And what did he do? He ran around he casting people out of the churches. Self thinks that his way is the only way. There's nothing that will divide a ministry team faster when there are people that feel their way is the only one. In our southern district, or in our Cumberland Valley churches, we had a conference this weekend, and we had a couple messages, beautiful messages on sub submission and my preference versus the church decisions. Self tries to put another brother down. Self cannot say, I'm sorry. Self cannot submit to authority. And by the way, ask any one of these ordained brothers if they still have to submit to authority. Self wants to be the center of attention. Self wants to be popular. Self does not want to admit failure. And self loves to have its place of authority. And self has not sanctified the Lord God in his heart. Not self-willed. Number five, patient or not soon angry. A man who can sit down with someone and hear them say, I failed again. And in patience, lead them to repentance. A man who can keep his ministerial team united on an issue. And when there is a meeting, public meeting, and maybe some harsh or angry, angry words start flying around, he's a man that is patient, not soon angry. He can diffuse those angry words. Number six, peaceable, not quarrelsome. Very much like patient and not soon angry, but peaceable. Many times, I don't know how it is down south here, but many times in Maryland we sit around at a minister's meeting and we don't all think alike. I hope that don't surprise you. And we have differences of opinion. And some of us are pretty opinionated people. A man who can understand there's differences of opinion, and not everyone thinks alike, and helps see an issue through to a resolution. Peaceable. 
And when people quarrel and argue with you, it's one of the hardest things to do not to try to dig in and defend your position. And sometimes we do have to do some of that. But in a peaceable, easy to be entreated type way. Number seven, temperate. In control of passions. Uh, not given to wine as mentioned. Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And I, I, I love the passage there in Acts chapter 2 where they, they, were, they were filled with the Holy Ghost and Peter and the apostles went out and they started preaching in the power of the Spirit. And people were hearing these men in their own language and folks looked on and said, these men are drunk. No, no. They were filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit of God. Temperate, in control of passions. Lusts. Money. I was speaking to some youth the other night, and I challenged them to get out a piece of paper and write down on that piece of paper everything they are 100% passionate about. And then evaluate their passions. Temperate, in control of passion. Number eight, lover of hospitality. I found a quote one time that I really liked. It's by an unknown source. It says, hospitality is making pe people feel at home when you wish they were. <laughs> if there's any qualification, I fall short on it's probably hospitality. But I, for some reason, I love to have people in our house uh, when, when company comes. But it's really, really hard to get myself there. And I feel like that throughout the week and throughout the weekends and on Sunday, my mind is engaged and you're thinking about the next meeting that's coming up, the next sermon you have to preach, the next engagement you have, issues with your children possibly, all these things that have your mind constantly engaged. And on Sunday afternoon, I want to sit down and just kick it out of gear and relax. And my wife says, let's have company tonight. Lover of hospitality. They didn't just put that in there because. It's going to be someone who engages himself, but he's still, his house is open. You want to come, you are welcome. Number nine, just. A lover of good men, a person who surrounds himself with honorable character. person who is willing to do a, the right thing when the right thing is not a popular idea. Number 10, holy. And Titus, Titus is the one that uses this qualification, holy, and simply is a word that means of divine character. Now, we are not lifting any one of these brethren up as divine. Understand that. There's a difference between divine character and lifting them up as divine. And I can go to 2 Peter 
chapter 1 and read you these verses as proof. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That is the man that you're looking for. That is the quality you're looking for in a man. A man who has that divine character in him through Jesus Christ. Number 11. Holding fast the faithful word. Yeah, let's do it. Psalm 119. We're going to take the time to turn there. I would just reference it, but I think it's important. Holding fast... The faithful word. Psalm 119, verse 129. I'm going to read some verses here. I'm not going to make comment, but as I read, I want you to think about this man. Is this the kind of man? Psalm 129. Thy testimonies are wonderful, therefore doth my soul keep them. The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth and panted. I longed for thy commandments. Look thou upon me and be merciful unto me as thou used to do unto those that love thy name. Order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. Deliver me from the oppression of man. So will I keep thy precepts. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant and teach me thy statute. Rivers of water run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. Righteous are thou, O Lord, and upright are thy judgments. Thy testimonies that thou hast commanded are righteous and very faithful. My zeal hath consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. Thy word is very pure, therefore thy servant loveth it. I am small and despised, yet do I not forget thy precepts. Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is the truth. Trouble and anguish have taken hold on me, yet thy commandments are my delights. The righteousness of thy testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. The passion. You write down one of your passions. Is your, one of your passions. Uh, David here I think was a psalm writer. One of his passions was the word. Holding fast the faithful word. Number 12. Apt to teach. Being able to clearly communicate biblical doctrines. To speak so that you're understood. I heard Brother Wesley King say one time that he is amazed at the amount of young people that come to MAM and say, we're not sure we would know how to lead a soul to Christ. A minister who does not a person, I should say, who does not shy away from walking up to that person that responds, maybe at a revival meetings, and takes them to minister to them, whether it's a new believer, whether it's somebody with a need, someone who can get up behind the pulpit and clearly communicate biblical doctrines so that it can be understood. 
And you think about in the role of a bishop and officiating, explaining himself clearly so that he's understood, apt to teach. Number 13, not a novice. I think there are some guidelines given to how long someone should be part of a congregation before they're eligible, maybe how long someone is a minister before they're eligible for bishop. Uh, some of those guidelines are in place because of this qualification, not a novice. And it specifically says, not a novice, lest he be lifted up with pride. A couple, a while back, I preached a message. And I felt during that message the presence of God, the anointing of the Spirit. And I had people come to me afterwards and tell me that they appreciated the message. It was just what the church needed. And, and we hear that sometimes. But this one lady came to me and she said, I saw something special tonight. She said, as you were up there preaching, I saw a halo around your head. It came down around your neck. What do you do with that? I asked my wife, she said, I didn't see any angels. <laughs> I'm glad that God has taken me through enough things in my preaching to know that if something comes out of what I say, that it has to be the Holy Spirit of God. I've had Older men, older women come to me and correct things I've said, tell me where I've erred. I've stood up and felt so confused in preaching that I basically had to read my notes. And if some of those comments would have came very, very early in my ministry, I'm not sure what I would have done with them. But as time goes on, we understand how weak we really are sometimes and how little we can really do. And how when people come to us and say, I was blessed, that you recognize that very possibly they were blessed by something you never said. It was the Holy Spirit confirming in their hearts. Not a novice. Number 14, vigilant, circumspect. Being aware, knowing what is going on around you, what is going on in the world, current events, when you get up to preach, what are, what are the issues that are facing the church? Someone who is vigilant, he understands that. Someone who knows what is happening within the congregation, within his church, and he's willing to stand up and speak to those issues. In the families, in the youth, because he's aware, he's vigilant. And number 15, an humble servant. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 5.
First Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another, be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. We understand the concept of younger submitting to the elder. But there's another concept here of, yea, all of you be subject one to another. And sometimes we really wrestle with that. And what does that look like? Sometimes do an intense study of that phrase, yea, all of you be subject one to another. And I think what you will find is this. It carries the thought or the meaning of, uh, of being duplicates of each other. And it works something like this. You go into a meeting, and you have different opinions, you have different ideas, and some of your opinions are very strong. And you sit there as a ministerial team, and you wrestle with the issues. And there's people that give. And there's people that yield, and there's people that submit. And in different issues, it's different people. When you come out of that meeting, you are duplicates of each other. You are a unified front facing the church. You may still have your opinion, but you have yielded that opinion in submission and humility, and you are coming out arm in arm with your brethren. I want to close with this. Our church was having a church picnic ball game the other night. And I, I intensely enjoy playing ball, and so I was there. I was playing. There was, a, there was a youth there who very much enjoys playing as well. And he was on my team, and some of us were playing the infield, and some of us were making a lot of errors, and balls were coming at us, and we were missing them, and they were going between our legs and past our gloves. And, and this young man who's pretty good at playing ball, I usually don't get past him. And he was there saying, uh, folks, get in front of the ball. Folks, just get in front of the ball. Don't try to reach out. If you get in front of the ball, it won't get past you. Get in front of the ball. And you could see written in some of the eyes where these balls are coming pretty fast. And what happens if you get in front of the ball and you miss it then? <laughs> and he eventually changed his tune from get in front of the ball to take one for the team. I like those kind of players, by the way. As I sat there and watched that, what I really wanted to do was to say, who here is willing to take one for the church? First Corinthians chapter 4. This is the kind of man. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. For I thank God, for I think that God hath set forth us apostles last, as it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world and to, 
and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are honorable, but we are, you are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as filth of the world and of the offscaring of all things unto this day. And we could turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And we could read the Apostle Paul saying, I am willing to spend and be spent, and the more I love, the less I am loved. He was one who was willing to take one for the church. And sometimes the things that we fall out with our church over are some very basic things. It really won't hurt that bad. It really won't. The young man who was hollering, take one for the team, was playing with a broken thumb because he broke his thumb playing ball. As you look for a qualified man, look for someone who's willing to sometimes get hurt because it's the bride of Christ.